I'm Jim Minns and you're listening to Minimal. My guest this week is state political editor with the Sydney Morning Herald, Alexandra Smith. Alexandra Smith, state political editor for the Sydney Morning Herald. Thanks so much for being on the podcast today. Really appreciate your time. Good to be here. Your book, The Secret, the story of the mighty rise and shocking fall of Gladys Berejiklian is coming out very, very soon. Congratulations on the book. Uh, it, I read it in, uh, in, a, in an afternoon. Uh, ploughing through the pages because um, I was under instructions from both members of uh, the Labor Party and the Coalition to find out whether or not they were in in the book. <laughs> I bet. <laughs> um, you know, funnily enough, my publisher said, let's not do an index because what happens with MPs is they flick to the end, see if they're in the index, and then if they are or not, you know, Makes them decide whether to buy the book. Mate, I was the human <laughs> index for that one, let me tell you that. Right. Um, but, you know, it's a really interesting read. And, and to begin, you, you open the book uh, with a quote from Khloe Kardashian, which at first seems very out of place until you read on and realise the connection, you know, with the Armenian culture uh, and that is so profound to uh, Gladys Berejiklian and also her love of the show. You know, and she you goes on to say she's a fanatic of reality TV shows, The Bachelor, Keeping Up with the Kardashians. Is it little things like this, do you think, normal things, that made uh, Gladys Berejiklian so endearing from, from the outset? Yeah, I think absolutely. You know, I think it. she, like the rest of us, have, our own, have vices. I mean, she doesn't drink and she's very um, strict with her diet, but she loves um, reality TV shows. She loves keeping up with the Kardashians. And as you mentioned, you know, they're Armenian and whether that's just part of the attraction for her or, or, you know, whether she just enjoys the show or, you know, she likes The Bachelor. So I think a lot of small things about Gladys made her very relatable to people. Although what I found really interesting as I was researching the book, a lot of these things we didn't ever discover about her because she was a very closed book premier and she repeatedly used the line, her job is focusing on core business. So that's not to reveal too much about herself, just to focus on being, you know, the ultimate public servant. So I think a lot of things I discovered about Gladys surprised me, um, even though I've been writing about her for many years and have known her for many years. Yeah. I mean, one of the things that's really interesting at the beginning is that her proud Armenian heritage really funnels a profound distaste of uh, for racism, obviously, which I thought was really interesting considering that she was very critical, and I didn't know this, obviously, for, except from the book, uh, of John Howard um, uh, during her early uni uh, days when he refused hmm. to take a stand against Pauline Hanson's inaugural speech. Well, that's right. And this is sort of what I mean. There are a lot of bits of Gladys Berejiklian that were not widely known um, during her time in public life. And, you know, one of them is her really strong stance that she's taken and a very public one back in back in the day against her her prime minister and the leader of the party that she really wanted to uh, become a rising star in and what she did, obviously. But, you know, I think it really, that episode where she, she organised a public rally to really stand up to perceived racism within her party and in some comments, that um, John Howard made in relation to Pauline Hanson really shows that she has very strong, deeply held views on on a lot of issues. But I think what was really interesting throughout her whole career, they were not always strongly revealed or portrayed. Um, and that, 
I think sometimes she felt she didn't need to or shouldn't do that. She just stood by what she believed in and didn't need to make a fuss. Why do you think the Liberal Party in particular was appealing to her? I think her migrant background and the idea of making something of yourself. And I mean, she is very much of the view, her, her philosophy is if you work hard, anyone can achieve anything they want to achieve, which, you know, in her instance, I suppose was the case. She uh, didn't start speaking English until she went to primary school. Um, she worked incredibly hard at a, a fairly average high school, got into university. You know, she is the classic, um, liberal success story, Mm. I think. And it's really interesting. There's a section in the book where it talks about her dad working on the opera house and she says that he was somewhat pushed into um, joining the union, which didn't went against, you know, everything he believed in. So Mm. I think she also had a very conservative um, political influence from her father, who she was very close to. Mm. Um, And I think that really drove her. And this real sense that they were so lucky to live in a country like Australia, you know, so many of her family members had um, been killed in pretty horrific circumstances during the Armenian genocide, and I think there was there were really it was really drummed into them, you know, the three sisters by her their parents that they really were lucky to be here, and so they had to make the most of it and work really hard to make sure that you know they gave back to the country that saved them. Really, yeah. I mean, that's. It really takes off for for Berry Gickling in in twenty seventeen. I mean, obviously she was a, a minister in the government before that, um, holding multiple high profile portfolios. But uh, upon the resignation of Mike Baird as premier, uh, you know she announces her intention and actually succeeds in becoming the the premier of New South Wales. Was this always a foregone conclusion, or was there a sense in you know from your section in the press gallery that securing the role? Uh, and obviously I'm jumping forward a little bit ahead here, but securing the role from Baird would lead to a shaky and somewhat destabilised period for the New South Wales Coalition Government. And I say that because chronologically there were two premiers who had just uh, quit at the time and it was always already six years into parliament. What into power. What was the sense from the press gallery there? I think at that stage, yes, you're right, it was six years in from when they had um, won in a landslide against Labor. But I think at that point, you know, New South Wales was still in a very strong position. Um, they were, it was financially, you know, incredibly strong through the sale of the poles and wires, you know, the electricity sale. Um, it was still, the government was still quite riding high, I, I think. You know, Labor was nowhere near close, no, not in striking distance of being a government at that stage. So even though, you know, they'd lost, of course, Barry O'Farrell, to uh, ICAC scandal, um, even though nothing, you know, there was no adverse findings against him, but he, he had to resign because of something that, that had emerged in in the ICAC. And then, of course, Mike Baird, who had been extremely popular, but once his fall from grace started, it, it continued pretty swiftly. Mm. But even by the time um, Gladys Berejiklian took over, the government was still in a pretty strong position. Um, and, you know, because I think Labor was still so far away from government at that point, I mean, after 2011, they were reduced to to just 20 seats, I think it was in the lower house. You know, they were so far from government. And while they were sort of clawing their way back in 2015, they picked up a, some more seats back from the coalition. You know, it, the, the government was in a, a still a very strong position, yeah. although, of course, the cracks started to come um, pretty soon after Berejiklian's 
um, rise to the top. A lot of it not, of course, you know, from her doing some pretty horrific things hit the state. Mm. Um, but I think she had an okay kind of run in her sort of first year, that 2017. But, um, you know, through to 2018. And then after that, things started to get a little trickier for her. And then by the time, of course, um, you know, she she won the 2019 election, but it was pretty close, um, mm. probably closer than it should have been. Mm. And then really stuff got tricky for her in that, in that last term. Um, of course, starting with a really bitter and nasty uh, debate, largely within her party over the decriminalisation of abortion. Mm, yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, to that uh, uh, point, uh, you know, what's interesting is that when she became Premier, there's there's a section in your book that states that she did not want to play any gender card and she didn't want to be remembered or known as the female Premier, just Premier. Um, and she was somewhat supportive of, of, you know, reproductive rights and whatnot, but didn't really want to play an active front page role in that debate. Why... Was she so risk-averse to that? You know, what's really interesting about that was I covered that period very closely. Um, I sort of wrote pretty much every story that evolved from that debate, including being on the press trip in the, in Europe where we were just – the only questions we were asking her were about the abortion reform. And I had no idea really how closely involved she was in the whole process. I – saw her as obviously she we knew her position that she was going to support the legislation to decriminalise abortion but I didn't realise really how involved she was and she decided to take this backseat role and support and really um, guide and mentor um, Alex Greenwich who's the independent Sydney MP who introduced the legislation and he explained to me for the book and he hadn't talked to me about this previously even though we've had many discussions about the issue that she felt that she really believed in it, but it was such a personal issue that she didn't want to use her position as leader to feel or to be seen as though she was influencing any of her colleagues, as though they feel they should vote in a certain way because she was voting. Um, and she wanted everybody really to have their, be able to take their own position, feel comfortable with that without any influence. Um, and I thought it was quite, it struck me as quite interesting because, like I said, I thought I knew that issue very well mm. and while I knew she was supportive I, I did wonder at the time I remember her not speaking to to the bill and I remember thinking what a shame you know she's a female premier couldn't she be sort of standing up and talking about why this is so important for women and but now I after talking to Alex Greenwich and him explaining to me I can I can understand where her thinking was and that was she just didn't want to influence anybody she had a very strong position mm. but that was her position and her position only Okay. Um, and I think that's kind of interesting. And that's what I mean. There's a lot of things about Gladys Berejiklian that were kind of kept under the radar. And when you delve into them, she did some pretty extraordinary things. I mean, you know, she was also very, very involved in the same-sex marriage plebiscite, helping Alex Greenwich there. But that was largely unnoticed. Mm. And I mm. think she just didn't always want to trumpet her position and her, perhaps whether at times maybe she was worried it was at odds with her Armenian background and her mm. Armenian church, which was an integral part of her life. Mm. Um, but, yeah, I, I think that the abortion debate, because it was so bitter, and it, it came close at times to, to ending her premiership. I mean, there were people within her party that were so angry with her, but yet she just stood 
stood strong, mm. let that all sort of swirl around her. And, and I mean, we can't say she emerged unscathed because a lot in the right of the party never forgave her. So okay. it certainly, you know, she came out battered, but mm. she came out. Right. You know, and, and the the laws passed and New South Wales was brought in line with the rest of the country and then she moved on to her next, yeah. <laughs> next crisis. Well, yeah, well, which we'll get to that in a minute. Um, look, you know, back onto the 2019 state election, um, of one with a slim majority, as, you, as you've mentioned. Um, but I, I, I feel like just looking back on the time, that there was a sense in the community that everyone was kind of very much, you know, the, the lay person not, not involved in politics on a day-to-day Comforted by uh, Berejiklian at the wheel, um, you've, you've written about uh, that she never took a day off during the Black Summer bushfires, visited victims outside Bateman's Bay on New Year's Eve with Shane Fitzsimmons. Um, now, at that time, the emerging ICAC investigation, I'm not sure because I'm, I wasn't across it as much as you and your colleagues were, but would, that, would it be right to say that that investigation was almost seen as an afterthought, you know, in the background of the legislative agenda of this government? And and, and did the calling of Berejiklian as a witness raise red flags with you and your colleagues? Well, no, not at all. Not initially. In fact, it was um, – everyone was quite surprised when her name was on the witness list for, for the um, four-week uh, inquiry into her – now, as we then discovered her former boyfriend, Daryl McGuire. But at the time, all that we thought was, well, Gladys Berejiklian was Premier in 2018 when she was forced to really put the hard word on Daryl Maguire to resign from Parliament because he'd been caught up in a separate ICAC scandal involving Canterbury City Council. And so when her name was on that witness list, it was everybody, including her colleagues, thought, well, okay, there's not, not much here. What we're going to be... Um, presented with is Gladys Berejiklian probably just getting her version of events, whether she had any concerns about an MP in her government and how she insisted that he leave Parliament. Nobody except a very small group of people within his off- within her office knew what was coming. And those people were sort of her chief of staff, um, her media director, I think a strategy director, very small group who were briefed so they could get ready for what was coming. Mm. But it was absolutely extraordinary. I I still remember that day when, you know, she revealed, well, she was asked by counsel assisting, were you in a close personal relationship? And she said yes. And because obviously that form of words is somewhat ambiguous, everybody was sort of thinking, hang on, what does that mean? Does does that mean, well, and then it took a a few minutes. Mm. I know text messages were flying and then suddenly everyone was like, wow, that means they were in you know, a romantic relationship. Mm. They were together. Mm. And it was extraordinary. Um, and I remember very clearly in the early hours of that day, as after that news broke, there were people, who, some of her ministers who were convinced she wouldn't survive this. Mm. But she did. And, you know, I think it's because she'd built up such significant political capital mm. through those, those um, you know, black summer bushfires um, and also the pandemic, which was underway, obviously. Mm, yeah. Um, well, I so, mean, I was just, well, on that, on that, I mean, and this really is like the, what's so fascinating about this moment in time from her career is that uh, it's a, it's, it really is an, a, a, a situation of fortuitous and unfortuitous events all unfolding at the same time uh, because um, you've got 
an unfolding pan. Well, we've just come through these bushfires, which I certainly hadn't lived through anything like them. They were very devastating, and everybody was shell shocked by them. Going into a pandemic, the last thing anybody really wanted to deal with was destabilized, sensationalized ridiculousness coming out of state parliament on Macquarie Street. And I think Berejiklian represented um, safety and comfort in that regard to the general public at large. Um, But at the same time, as you have just alluded, what does the definition of a close personal relationship really entail? And is there any legal obligations associated with it? That was the the big question that everyone was facing. And I think Berejiklian and her staff were facing it as well. Mm, Yeah. I mean, I think I've often reflected on this and I do believe that if Berejiklian hadn't had the bushfires and then the pandemic to, to, you know, kind of show her skills as a very strong leader and, and, you know, comforting, like you said, it would have been much harder for her, I think, to survive the ICAC scandal. But she had managed to, through, you know, being on our television screens and, you know, day in, day out at some of the worst times we've experienced. I mean, the bushfires were horrific, but then, of course, a pandemic that, you know, if you remember what it was like when we first went into lockdown, no one knew what was coming on. Mm. No one, there was a lot of fear. And she was the the, the voice that we heard every day kind mm. of often delivering bad news. But I think there was a sense, you know, like you said, that she we were sort of being guided by her. So, but I've often, you know, I've often thought, I really wonder if she could have survived the ICAC um, scandal had she not had those two big events um, to really lift her profile because, you know, going into the 2019 election, they were really worried they were going to lose that election because I don't think she was largely unpopular, but she was largely unknown. You know, mm. she was just this sort of premier who was leading this, the biggest state. Um, you know, she she was sort of, she, she was capable, of course, but somewhat unremarkable. Mm. And it really wasn't until these huge events hit sort of helped save her political career. Mm. Well, that's, in the short term, I should say. Well, that's it. Well, right, of course. And that's really interesting. I mean, after the appearance and the disclosure at the ICAC in, in, inquiry, uh, her office, and you go into that's really interesting, um, went into sort of public relations damage control to craft a narrative um, around um, a, a relationship that broke down and a, and a broken heart that was, you know, the result of that. And, you know, a sense that anyone can relate to that. Do you think that was, uh, I mean, obviously, I feel like it was a very effective tactic, but did it have any detrimental effect on on her standing in ICAC? Well, I think it did. I do think it was a very good tactic. Like, you know, there's no doubt they were able to portray her as this lovely, you know, girl that got dudded by a you know, a bad boyfriend, mm. you know. I mean, even though she was a middle-aged woman who was in an incredible position of power and they were able to sort of convince the public almost like this sort of inexperienced young girl who didn't really know and she was got mixed up with the wrong guy and, you know, everyone's been there, done that, and we can all sort of feel sorry for her. Um, and that worked really well. The problem, of course, is by doing that and by, on the one hand, being in the ICAC and saying, look, our relationship wasn't of note, it wasn't significant enough for me to tell my family and friends, so therefore, why would I even need to declare it Mm. to my colleagues? And then the other hand, you're then going out to the public and talking to, you know, tabloid newspapers saying, I loved him, I wanted to marry him, 
Um, mm. And I wondered at the time whether this would be a problem. I thought, you know, on one hand, it, I can see why they're doing it and it's working and it's going to save her. But I wonder if that won't impress ICAC. But, you know, I, that would just always play to my mind. And sure enough, when um, Gladys Berejiklian was back before ICAC, um, the commissioner mentioned this. And when, at one period during the hearing, when she asked or her, her lawyer asked for some evidence to be heard in private to protect her so that she didn't have to be exposed to any, I guess, more humiliating secrets, um, the commissioner, Ruth McCall, said, well, and, you know, I'm paraphrasing her, sure. but basically, well, you were okay to go and talk about this all publicly to, you know, radio shock jocks and to newspapers and also to glossy magazines. I'm not sure you can really now ask to have evidence heard in private. Right. So I have no doubt that that media strategy worked and it bought her an extra year. It definitely did. Mm. But I do wonder when the report comes down whether it may have ended up being quite damaging in the long run for her uh, in terms of what findings ICAC um, hand down. Yeah. I mean, that that's, like, brings me to the next question. Could – this is a hypothetical that, uh, you know, uh, uh, we've debated – I've debated amongst colleagues and friends. Could Berejiklian have remained Premier despite the investigation? Now, I ask that because to this day she remains very popular with the community from the situations that you've brought up, the, the, her response to the pandemic, her response to the Black Summer bushfires – you know, there were petitions for her to remain um, as leader at the time of her resignation, people leaving flowers for her at her electoral office. What is, for the, lay, for the general public, what is the main force behind her resignation if it isn't public opinion? Well, so, sure, and it was definitely not public opinion. If you're going just by that, I think she definitely could have stayed. But the reality is she had made it very clear and she'd set the rules herself that if any of her team had been accused of any wrongdoing um, by an integrity body, they had to do the right thing and resign. So I suppose, you know, it would be very hard for her to set rules and enforce them on others, but then not stick to them herself. Um, and so once she was actually, you know, it's one thing when she was before ICAC in um, the investigation, which was just focused on Daryl Maguire, but when it became uh, her, you know, an inquiry into her, it would be very hard for her to maintain the line um, that, she had every right to stay as Premier, you know, the, the most senior ministerial role in the government um, while she was facing, you know, some pretty significant um, accusations of corruption. And, and, of course, you know, people get very confused about what corruption is, and that's understandable. I mean, corruption, often people think of, you know, money in bags and paper yeah. bags being handed out. But under the ICAC Act, it's much broader than that and it does involve, you know, um, misusing your power when you're an MP. Um, and so, you know, the reality is she that's, that's where she got caught up in terms of investigating whether she was involved in any corrupt conduct. And I just think, of course, we're not – even when she resigned, the election was not that far away. The coalition would be asking for another four years after being in power for 12 by the time the election rolls around. Mm. And it would be very hard position for her to maintain that, you know, she should be the person that the state elects mm. uh, to lead them for another four years when she had this, um, in, you know, this cloud, this corruption cloud really hanging over her head. And as I said, particularly because she set the rules around what she expected of her colleagues. Um, indeed, you know, she insisted Daryl Maguire resign from Parliament when he was mentioned in a corruption inquiry. It, it would have been impossible for her to stay in the position, even though I think the public would have largely supported her. 
Yeah. At the time of her resignation, there was a lot of uh, media spotlight on ICAC as an institution itself. Obviously, it was brought up federally by the Prime Minister at the time, Scott Morrison. I think, and I'm paraphrasing myself, he referred to it as a kangaroo court on the floor of Parliament. Um, And there was even some calls from journalists, I remember, who said that it was an irresponsible act of the ICAC to... uh, uh, force Gladys essentially to become a witness again because that's leading to her to resign under the standards that you've just mentioned uh, in a time when the state really needs her to do her job uh, regarding the pandemic and the lockdowns that we were experiencing. What is your view on that? Well, look, there's no doubt it was terrible timing. I mean, that's true. But on my view is the flip side is imagine if we had later discovered that ICAC delayed starting an inquiry into the Premier because they didn't think the timing was right. Um, You know, they would have been criticised heavily, and I think rightly so. I think once there is evidence or suspicion that an inquiry, you know, not just suspicion, they obviously felt that they had enough to pursue a public inquiry, I think they had no option. And I think they were probably quite aware that they were going to be criticised. You know, there were a lot of people um, within the Liberal Party who were, really, really angry and convinced that this was just a political hit job on, on Berejiklian. But I really believe that, you know, had they had we later found out that they delayed it to, to, to be better timing, I mean, that's when it starts to become political in my view. I mean, surely if they're trying to run an inquiry that is at the best time for the Premier, then they're, they're not certainly, um, you know, being at arm's length from the government or unbiased. You know, they're playing to a political tune and I think that would be even more damaging for the ICAC. So I understand, of course, the timing was terrible. I mean, Mm. we did not need to lose a Premier at that point. We were coming towards reopening, which was going to be, you know, pretty – nobody really knew how that was going to go. Mm. Of course, it would have been better to have steady government throughout. Mm. But at the same time, if we're going to trust in the ICAC as an institution, we have to – you know, they have to be non-political and they just have to pursue things as, as, as a, you know, as, as they come up or face, you know, face some pretty serious accusations of being, um, you know, under the control of the government of the day. Yeah. I mean, look, 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 the book and our conversation, ensuing conversation, really tells me that, you know, Gladys Berejiklian is someone who is passionate about the work that she performed. I mean, there's no doubt she was a very passionate premier. Um, but is someone on the flip side who's not who, who wants the focus really to be any attention to be on the work and not necessarily and let the work speaks for itself and not you know and and unfortunately politics comes with a degree of scrutiny that she was perhaps never willing to accept. Yeah, I think that's very true. I mean, I, I think as the years went on, and it certainly changed from when she was in opposition. I mean, she was very. Well, she saw the media as very useful to her. But as she went on and climbed up through the ranks and became Premier, um, scrutiny, you know, media scrutiny or scrutiny from the opposition, but particularly media, um, she really had an issue with. Uh, and I think she really believed, and because, like you said, she, she was very passionate. She really believed in what she did. There's no doubt about that. I just don't think she could ever sort of fathom that, that anybody could criticise her for what she was doing. Of course, it's not about criticising the person. I mean, you know, it's about 
the government that she leads and hold, keeping that government to account, and she happens to head that government. Um, but she was very, very, um, you know, adverse to any sort of criticism and saw it almost as though, almost inappropriate. I mean, she really didn't like the media, mm. and that became increasingly apparent. Um, and I understand, I mean, a lot of, you know, a lot of MPs and people in the public life don't like the media at times, but um, I think also sh- a lot of, it's because they're, they're soft, Alex. They're soft. <laughs> <laughs> no, um, I, well, I mean, look, I think you're absolutely right. I just wanted to ask you as well, um, you know, you, you've been the state political reporter for a long time now. You've seen a lot of um, activity go through in and out of that building. You'd know it, you know, very, very well, very uh, detailed. Where, you know, you could have written a book about anything. Why, what, what was this? Why did... What was this the, the 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 moment that you went? Hang on, this is something I want to really want to d- dive into. Because I just found um, Gladys so uh, interesting and and so complex. I mean, when she was premier before the Black Summer fires, before the pandemic, you know, she was another leader, and I've covered you know Labor and Liberal premiers, and you know, a lot of them they. <laughs> They survive scandals or they, you know, all, all sorts of things. Things happen, big stories that you think, wow, this is incredible. And, you know, up until sort of the beginning of, I suppose, 2020, Berger Clean was no different. Then, you know, obviously those big events happened and it was, you know, that was interesting in how she managed to sort of navigate her way through and bring New South Wales with her. But what really struck me was um, once, she, once the ICAC scandal happened, and the fact that, you know, this woman who had never really shown herself, you know, she, she was such a closed book. And then her life, her private life was laid bare. And it was just such a, I think to me, I thought it just it's such a story of human frailty. And it doesn't matter who you are, like your life can come tumbling down around you. Mm. And I, you know, had, had, I always thought had Gladys, not survived it, there probably wouldn't. Sorry, had Gladys survived, there probably wouldn't be in a book a book in it because it's just another story of a, a premier who went through a tough time mm. and wrote it out, and here we are. Mm. But I think that in the end, this tragic failed love story mm. got her. You know, this very capable woman, very smart woman who worked so hard and never got distracted by silly things on the side. Mm. It was something so simple that could get anybody. You know. A, a really failed relationship that brought her undone. And I just thought, you know, it's it's more than just a political story. It's a story about, you know, like I said, human frailty and making just one, well, when I say one small judgment, bad judgment, I mean she, that she was in a relationship with him for five years. So mm. she wasn't, it wasn't just like a small blip that she, uh, you know. Um, and it's incredible just how it sort of brought her down politically. Yeah. And is th- what's next for you um, Alex are you are you maintaining um, uh, your role at the at the state at state parliament or do you have another book in you I'm sure it's a very premature question after you've just <laughs> written a book and I'm sorry for no, being so like that not at all no no people keep asking me what my next book is and you know what the funniest thing is there are ministers in the government that say to me now so I've got I'm just keeping a list of things for when you write um, your book on me <laughs> <laughs> 
Um, but I'm really excited. Look, I love covering state politics. I really love politics. I'm really excited about covering a state election, seeing where the state goes, you know, um, because it's just been such an incredible time, hasn't it, everywhere, globally. Yeah. Um, so my intention is certainly to keep covering politics, um, and I certainly wouldn't rule out another book. Um, you know, I've sort of my publishers ask, already asked me to sort of think about what else I'd like to Excellent. do. But I think it would be hard to – you know, a story. There's very few stories that come around like, like the Gladys Berejiklian story. Yeah. Um, so you know, unless someone like, well, a Labor leader can top it. <laughs> <laughs> yes, Labor leader's brother in tra- crazy scandal becomes the focus of your next of your next <laughs> <That's> book. <right. laughs> oh, look, Alexandra Smith. Uh, I've been a reader of your work for many years now. It was great to actually meet you and have a nice chat and uh, good luck with this book and wishing you all the success in the future. Thanks for your time. Thanks. Great to chat. 